Hello and welcome to the ACT 2025 podcast, a new World Resources Institute series looking at the forthcoming COP26 climate conference from the point of view of the most climate vulnerable countries. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, we're looking at climate finance and how it can unlock climate action. And it's not just about resources, but it's also about capacity building, debt relief, technology transfer and development. Also, why effective delivery of climate finance is something to benefit all and not just the recipients. Climate finance is not just a charity or a begging bowl scenario. Vulnerable developing countries are part of the global supply chain. Hello. COP26 in Glasgow is widely seen as critical if the world's going to avoid catastrophic climate change. But what does success look like from the point of view of low-income countries on the front line of climate change impact? Many of them have joined a grouping called Act 2025 to make sure their voices are heard. And this series puts forward those issues that are important to them. Here, we're talking about climate finance. In 2015, developed countries promised that by 2020, they provide $100 billion a year to help lower-income countries take climate action. But it's now 2021, and much of that money has not been delivered. To find out how this shortfall affects those at the sharp end of climate change, WRI's Molly Bergen spoke to Maria Laura Rojas Vallejo, co-founder and executive director of Transformer, a Colombia-based think tank and an Act 2025 partner. What concerns does she think vulnerable countries have about current discussions on the finance question? There are many, but I would say there are mainly three. The first is that global discussions are asking a lot from developing countries on mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions, and rightly so. But this truly needs to be coupled with support. The second one is that global discussions seem to be stuck in like the 90s or the 2000s, where mitigation was the priority by itself. And just as the AR6 from the IPCC reiterated, there is a degree of warming that is already locked in. So it shouldn't be so uphill to have a conversation on finance for adaptation and for loss and damage. And this truly needs to be considered much more seriously. And the third one is that existing commitments are both insufficient and not being met. And this is a terrible combination. What does this look like in practice? An example of a a country or even a more local place that wants to do more climate action, but they just don't have the financing for it. I think that that is the case for most developing countries. There are very significant challenges to implementing climate action. So, for instance, Colombia is a country that is, of course, not even close to being one of the greatest emitters worldwide. It still has a 51% commitment in its recently submitted NDC. And it still remains a challenge to see how that is going to be funded because developing countries don't operate in a vacuum, right? We are all part of an international market dynamic where developed countries also play a really important role. Even for instance, the 100 billion commitment is so far away from the actual needs. Like OECD, UNEP and the World Bank, before the pandemic, estimated that it would take like 6.9 trillion dollars a year to meet the climate objectives. And this was even before the pandemic. And so when when you see a country like Colombia struggling to implement a 51% target on top of the pandemic, on top of a lot of development challenges and social needs and, and a lot of crises that are all bubbling at the same time, it's truly difficult. And it's not just about resources, but it's also about capacity building, debt relief, technology transfer and development. There's a lot of ways in which support can be delivered, and it's, it's really urgent. 
So what do you think needs to happen at COP26 in order to restore trust between countries and, you know, make sure that the climate financing gets where it needs to be? Yeah, I, I think three main things. The first is delivery on the commitment of mobilizing the U.S. $100 billion. That is truly key. And even though there is not a lot of time for this to happen, there should be like a scaled up effort to mobilize whatever it takes so that that target will be, will be met. The second is that, as I just mentioned, there is a huge gap in between these international commitment to the actual needs. And so there need to be additional commitments and efforts to increase the provision of grants and concessional loans. And there needs to be increased and additional finance for adaptation and loss and damage. And let's make sure that there is consistency in financial flows between public, private, national and international investments. The second one is about the new finance goal. It is really fundamental that this new finance goal is in the context of the Paris Agreement and the achievement of the 1.5 degree temperature goal. And the third one is that there needs to be an acknowledgement of the impact of COVID-19 pandemic so that developing countries can address this multiple crisis in parallel and there is enough support so that the climate priorities are not dropped in the face of more urgent social and economic needs. Is there anything else that you think needs to happen outside of the UNFCCC climate negotiations to get us where we need to be? I think every single investment decision needs to be aligned with Paris. And when you think of it that way, the scope of institutions and meetings that should be addressing climate finance is so much bigger than just the UNFCCC. And we truly need to shift those financial flows that are currently not consistent with 1.5. So it's not just climate finance in terms of, you know, where is the funding coming from for renewables and for, you know, halting deforestation and all of this, but how are we moving away from those that are currently not consistent? How to phase out investments on fossil fuel and high emitting industries and activities in a planned and just manner. And vulnerability is truly structural. It's about exposure and sensitivity, and these are very high for developing countries. It's about adaptive capacity, and this is low for developing countries. And it's a terrible combination, and this needs to be acknowledged in global conversations and be addressed. And finance is really instrumental for keeping 1.5 within reach and to keep the trust in this multilateral process on which we are counting on to guide the collective efforts so that we can avoid some of the catastrophic effects that we are foreseeing. And that was Maria Laura Rojas Vallejo of Transformer. You're listening to a special WI podcast series on what vulnerable countries want from COP26, in this case, climate finance. Next, Molly Bergen spoke to Sarah Jane Ahmed, a finance advisor for the V20, a grouping of 48 ministers of finance representing many of the most climate vulnerable countries. So the system we have today was not built to contend with non-financial and economic shocks like COVID and climate change. And we're clearly off track in terms of keeping to the 1.5 degree limit. And so it's important to boost global cooperation with an outcome robust enough to safeguard the 1.5 degree limit. Other concerns include the cost of capital. This is a serious problem given the obvious need for economy-wide transformation and also because generally the average cost of capital are far higher than developed economies. The, the high capital costs obviously would affect commercial viability and bankability of many projects. The other point is on technology transfer and manufacturing partnerships. The technologies today are available 
one, to safeguard the 1.5 degree limit, uh, and also to enable adaptation and resilience outcomes. However, the technology isn't necessarily completely available, and the manufacturing needs to be expanded to ensure that it is cost competitive for developing countries. And then a last point is on the affordability of climate and disaster risk financing and insurance tools. Right now, there is a financial protection gap of 98% for climate and disaster risks. And as we know, the system we have isn't built to contend with the non-financial and economic shocks. And so there is a need to have a new system that prioritizes new investment in resilience, including preparedness, to reduce life and economic losses, as well as uh, reduce the overall cost of response and recovery measures. Could you explain that stat that you just mentioned, the 98%? Can you explain a little bit what that means? So the 98 financial protection gap means that 98% of the private sector and, and households as well remain unprotected, meaning they have no access to liquidity or tools in the event of disaster. And so this gap also means that when disasters strike, it ends up becoming more expensive because it's about responding post-disaster rather than improving readiness so if one had access to liquidity, for example, pre-disaster, you could either move, knowing that an extreme weather event is coming, you could buy supplies, resources. So that way, when it hits, you are better supported rather than after the fact where you're scrambling for liquidity uh, and access to resources, which then means that there's likely compounding damages moving forward. I'm wondering if you could briefly summarize the $100 billion situation. It's quite an abstract number that was obviously pulled out of thin air 12 years ago doesn't necessarily reflect today's financing needs. However, the delivery of the 100 billion is a point that enables the rebuilding of trust as well as renewing of partnerships among nations. Uh, so the V20 during the first Climate Vulnerables Finance Summit called for the delivery of the 500 billion target over five years through a delivery plan. And this is for 2020 until 2024. And this would be considered a benchmark of success for COP26. And while the, the 100 billion per year is not obviously enough, utilizing it in a way that can unlock trillions would be an opportunity to then close this gap. And this requires predictability, clear allocation, and easier access. But beyond that, it also means that there has to be the right composition to enable leveraging opportunities. So this could come in the form of guarantees, first loss facilities, and other to try to mobilize private sector investment to be able to uh, invest in the trillions of opportunities out there uh, when it comes to building low carbon and climate resilient economies. And so what about outside of the climate negotiations? What needs to happen kind of alongside them to help advance climate finance? So cooperation in economic and financial arenas, including the G7, the G20, regional development banks, the World Bank, the IMF, these are all important venues and actors in order to safeguard the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement and also to support resilience and adaptation outcomes. The other point that sits outside of the COP um, and outside of the arenas for climate is also on climate disaster risk financing and insurance, where a lot of these tools, while needed, are quite expensive. And there is also a lack of investment generally in regional and domestic markets for these tools to be made accessible.
So what would you say to someone who might say, you know, we have to deal with pandemic related costs first before climate? Pandemic and climate, these are both non-financial shocks. They're both economic shocks to the system. And in order to recover and build more resilient systems, the triple dividend of dealing with the pandemic, economic growth, as well as building climate resilience are very similar in investment scope. And so while there is trade-offs in the short term, the long-term trade-offs may not actually be trade-offs. They could actually be reaching the same outcomes. Certainly the pandemic is really important in the short term. And as soon as an extreme weather event comes through, pushes them back even further because they're dealing with dual shocks. So it's key that the resources that are made available deal with the short-term needs of the pandemic, as well as the medium to long-term needs of the climate crisis that could actually support building forward stronger during the, the recovery process after the pandemic. If you could say one thing to leaders of major economies regarding climate finance, what would you say? The delivery of climate finance is not just a, a charity or a begging bowl scenario. The delivery of climate finance is important to ensure the functionality of the global system. Vulnerable developing countries are part of the global supply chain. The 500 billion delivery plan for 2020 to 2024 should be seen as an investment in the opportunities around economic growth as we look to the recovery countries developed and developing will be locking in new investment. What these new investments are will be defined by the cost of capital, debt sustainability constraints, technology transfer, manufacturing partnerships. And so we do have the opportunity to shift our trajectory this decade, but it would mean decisive action from the G20 to ensure that the issues that are stopping this transition from happening are solved the next few years or this year rather than later, because later may be too late with all the lock-in that will happen in this decade. Sarah Jane Ahmed. Finally, as we'll do in all of these Act 2025 podcasts, we'll turn to WRI's Director of Climate Negotiations, Yami Danier. What does she want to see at COP26 on the question of climate finance? There's three outcomes and signals that we would like to see at COP26. You know, the first would be to reestablish trust, to make sure that the commitments made by developed countries to reach 100 billion per year from 2020 is fulfilled. This would mean, you know, seeing 500 billion between 2020 and 2024. And in order to reach that, we will need to track the pledges from developed countries, the replenishments you know, of existing climate funds, and to make sure that more grants, meaning less loans and concessional finance, are being provided in a special adaptation to the most vulnerable countries to facilitate access, especially at a time of debt distress. Access in general, you know, is very important since only 2% of climate finance goes to small island states and 14% only to LDCs. So that's what we want to see for the 100 billion. And we want to see a delivery plan to make sure that it's not just talk. There's a proper way to really meet that outstanding goal. The second is looking forward, adopting a new goal that we need to be based on the needs of developing countries 
And we talk, therefore, you know, about trillions rather than billions there. And we need to remember that the 100 billion goal adopted in Copenhagen in 2009 was more symbolic. What developing countries want to see is a new goal that is more aligned with what is at stake, what we need to really deliver if we want to achieve the 1.5 goal. And we want to see as part of this what needs to happen until 2025 and also a process to make sure that there's proper consultation. And the third is having some commitments to reach parity for the for financing mitigation and adaptation. Adaptation is still lagging behind. Only 25% of climate finance goes to adaptation. Mitigation and adaptation are two sides of the same coin. What will you be watching at COP26 on the issue of climate finance? What I will be watching are you know, signals from developed countries. We did have some good signals during the UN General Assembly from the US and before that from the EU, Germany. But, you know, what they pledge is simply not enough, you know, to reach the one billion goal. We also seen, you know, some encouraging signals from Denmark, Sweden, UK, Netherlands, who committed to bring 50% at least of their climate finance towards adaptation. We need to see more countries, you know, to do that. But I will also look at, we need to, to understand uh, the demands of developing countries and to make sure that they're n- it's not perceived as charity. They are not asking charity. It's a question not only of justice, but also, you know, it makes business sense to, to really invest where we need to avoid stranded assets and to be serious about powering the, the future that we want. So it's all about trust. And I think, yes, the other thing that we will monitor is the level of trust, you know, when based on how, how many signals are coming ahead during the COP. And that was Yami Danier ending this Act 2025 podcast on climate finance and what vulnerable countries want from the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. In the series, we'll also be looking at ambition, rules, loss and damage, and adaptation. And they're all available now, plus much more on COP26, what it means, why it's important, and all that, on our website at wri.org slash act2025. I'm Nicholas Walton, and I was joined as ever on this podcast by my colleague from WRI's climate team, Molly Bergen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.